are coming live from Batemans Bay and quarantine. West Bay. What was that? Batemans Bay and West Bay in Doha. Woohoo! Will is currently in lockdown, slightly going um, stir crazy from being locked in a room, which actually he's, you know, probably isn't the first time he's been locked in, uh, in a room before. Uh, don't look at his police record, whatever you do. Uh, but in this episode, we're going to be talking about a bit of a summary of the past episodes that we've discussed uh, with interviews and discussions between ourselves. And what we want to do is really summarise what we've learned to date and how it could be applied in a practical sense uh, for our own investing purposes and anyone else's as well, obviously. Uh, we've interviewed already psychologists, we've interviewed race car drivers and pilots, we've interviewed upcoming investors, young investors, and we've also talked about uh, investing methodologies and way to think about different companies using the blue ocean strategy or using the star principles. So it's probably a relevant point in time now for us to get back together and think about how we can actually pull these pieces together and what understand what we've actually learned over the wheel. So I, I thought we'd start with the summary of the podcast itself that I, I wrote for the entry of the podcast in Anchor. I said there that we solved the mathematical problem of causing an enormous increase in one's net financial worth through human effort. The podcast therefore has two themes, mathematics and human behavior. Together, behavioral investing. I said that we take a first principles approach by summarizing scientific studies and interviewing psychology and mathematics researchers. This will show us the first principles. Uh, I then said that we will then reason from these first principles to the best strategy to cause optimal human investing behavior. Let's talk about episode one where we interviewed the psychologist, Tom, and he gave us some good tips about um, thinking about long-term investing, we introduced Tom to the concept of massive um, net finance, financial uh, growth, financial growth in assets. Um, and he, he gave us a bit of guidance on how we could actually achieve that, not so much in a financial perspective, but from a behavioural um, perspective. I think the key points that I got from his discussion was it's critical that you use, uh, you define what your goal is initially and you define in specific terms using a smart framework, how you would go about to achieve that long-term goal. He did highlight that it's not usual or common for humans to think about long-term objectives. We're very much have lived in a history where we have wanted short-term needs to ensure that our survival, but that saving for the future is something that's not natu naturally uh, intrinsic in humans. You also pointed about, pointed on the topic of um, giving up your wants and making sure that you're able to give up short-term desires in order to achieve a longer-term objective and one of the things that he pointed out was to give yourself short-term rewards as a way to incentivize yourself to keep going forward. 
And why were those short-term rewards required? What was the system that he was leveraging? And why does that system exist? So my understanding was there was a dopamine, dopamine system. Uh, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a dopamine system. And by getting that, those short-term rewards, you're incentivized to continue on by getting a dopamine. Why, why does that dopamine system exist? Well, please enlighten us. <laughs> I don't want this to be a, <laughs> a So what I'm trying to do... No, 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 no. But what, what I'm trying to do is have things driven by first principles. And feel free to accuse me of being an Elon Musk fanboy. But he uses first principles to do things like make cheaper battery packs. So there's an interview, I think, in the, one of the Tesla factories with Elon Musk, where he's talking about how it costs like 600 bucks per kilowatt hour uh, to buy a battery pack. But if he went back to first principles and used you know, laws of physics and theories from chemistry, and simply assembled the raw materials required to produce a battery pack, he could do it more efficiently and cheaply. And that's how, you know, Tesla gained an advantage. And is how, do we, how do we apply that to what we're talking about here with dopamine or short? So, sure. So just, just to, to if, if, if you'll uh, allow me to elaborate slightly more on the idea of first, first principles. There's a, a popular blog, um, it's, I think it's FS. I don't know what, it, what the uh, acronym stands for, but um, it's a popular finance blog and they have a passage in there about first principles. Every play we see in the NFL was at some point created by someone who thought, what would happen if the players did this and went out and tested the idea? Since then, thousands, if not millions of plays have been created. That's part of what coaches do. They assess what's physically possible along with the weaknesses of other teams and the capabilities of their own players and create the plays that are designed to give their teams an advantage. The coach reasons from first principles. The rules of football, in this case, are the first principles. They govern what you can and can't do. Just like Elon Musk had to examine uh, the laws of physics and chemistry to figure out what he could and could not do with the raw materials for the batteries. This is what NFL coaches have to do. Uh, and then they go on to say, everything is possible as long as it's not against the rules. The play stealer works off what's already been done. Sure, maybe he adds a tweak here or there, but by and large, he's just copying something that someone else created. So in doing this podcast, what we could do, at, you know, in trying to figure out how to become rich, essentially, is we could, you know, I don't know, get a, a financial consultant, uh, sit down with them. Uh, they'll give their off-the-shelf package with all of their commissions and other fee-earning uh, ideas built in. And we will slowly get rich, but we'll also make the advisor rich. So Also get an understanding of how they work and what's in their thinking and what's in their products and also their understanding of, of the products themselves. It's true, yeah. And we probably should have an advisor on. I think we've, we've lined one up for season two. But what, what I'm getting at is that it sounds like Tom was pointing us at 
a first principle because he was highlighting the fact that we are an animal and like other animals, we have a, a reward system that uses hormones, one of those being dopamine, to essentially foster repetition of behaviors that are conducive to the achievement of things that are valuable to us. And Tom, as you were sort of introducing there, uh, Ben, Tom said that the that releases of dopamine will produce in us a, a good feeling when something that is uh, accords with our values occurs so that we're more likely in seeking that good feeling that dopamine causes, uh, we're more likely to repeat that behavior. And we, we can't we can't really the system. Yeah. We just need to be able to manipulate it um, to our own advantage in terms of advantage of a financial goal. In other words, become rich, as you said. So if we were to think about that now, what is the big audacious goal first? And then what are the short-term rewards that you're going to put in place for achieving them? And how frequently are those short-term goals going to be? short-term rewards going to be and that's what we haven't answered yeah i don't know so for me i put a little bit of thought and a very very little bit of thought into it my no we do have the goal we have the goal and that's the reason for this whole podcast and it was it was you we're starting actually from the wrong interview we should be starting from your the interview i did with you because it was basically this incredible idea and goal that you came up with of a billion dollars in 108 years that basically led us to 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 do this whole go on this whole journey because we were like you know well 108 years is a hell of a long time to repeat these behaviors for and um you know uh and by the way why does nobody do it because like a billion dollars is if either of us had a billion dollars, can you imagine what it would be like? <laughs> like it's unimaginably awesome. But at the same time, literally nobody is doing the repetitive behavior that you outlined that's required to achieve the goal. So that's like, there's this massively awesome goal that could be achieved, but literally nobody that we've ever met is doing it. So that, that's the whole mystery that we're trying to solve. Yeah, and the reason people haven't done it is because if you think of, out of all of human history, and I mean all of human history, going back whenever you want to think of when did humans start to exist, whether it's 20,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago, we're in the last um, 100 years of that timeline and no other point in time has that ability been have the things been in place for people to be able to do it in, in terms of steady, comfortable work, work environment, steady, comfortable um, share markets that people can access. You think 200 years ago, the average Joe would not have had access to a share market that he could easily trade in. Let alone bank account. Yeah, exactly. Bank account, let alone a trading account. Yeah, probably, yeah. it's probably easier for him to trade on some market somewhere 
It probably would have been more um, value opportunities, like at that time because of the, imagine if you had a, had Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor 200 years ago and you had the money and you could invest, you would have found so many opportunities. Um, or even a local factory. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, well, we've almost defined what the short-term goals are then. It's every year putting $35,000 in to the share market. And you could set up the goals being, um, rather than a 35,000 lump sum, you could break it into shorter term goals. You could make 17,500 every six months. And once you've done that, you give yourself some nice reward with any- Well, it's just shy of 3,000 bucks a month. Yeah, okay. So if you wanna do it monthly, I think you've gotta make the goals Depends what, what really triggers your reward system. Because I think if you had it six monthly and you said at the end of each six months that we hit it, assuming that you do have the cash spare, you could say, I'll do a nice little overseas holiday for a week or two weeks. Yeah, that could that's be what it. I was thinking. If you were going to do it monthly, then I think the reward needs to be proportionally smaller as well. So it doesn't touch your financials or, the, or your time resources. So if it was a monthly thing, it might be just going out for a nice meal and um, go to the theatre or something or the cinema. Um, I think people need to think about that. I think a six monthly one would be, um, I don't know, for myself, you need to tap into your own desires. Um, would be like a, an overseas holiday each six months that you achieved. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I'm just just to uh, admittedly belabor this point, but only because I feel like there's absolutely no point in getting involved in this if we don't know the first principles, if we don't know actually exactly what it is we're operating with. And the reason we're even having this discussion is that there's this first principle about being a human in terms of the rules, which is that how we get through life is with a biologically based and driven reward system called the dopamine system. And when something that's valuable to us occurs, we get a release of dopamine in the hopes, in our little biological systems hopes of having us as an organism repeat that behavior so that that thing that's valuable to us in terms of our survival occurs again. Yeah. So I, I just, as much what this whole exercise is for me is to discover the dimensions, like the rules, you know, of the playing field that we're on as humans, as primates. So that, because it, it's a really big thing that we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, um, I, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the, the, uh, the modern pyramids um, of, of West Bay in Doha, the, the diplomatic area in Doha. There's a bunch of skyscrapers here. None of those skyscrapers would have a chance of standing without the engineers that designed them understanding the first principles, you know, basically of physics and material science um, for the, the materials used to, to put these things together. That's what I'm talking about. Mm. Yeah. All right. So what are your short-term goals going to be? Okay. If you can't answer it now, that's fine. Well, 
Well, th there's another thing. So, so another thing, I'll kind of answer that by, by summarizing another part of what Tom said. And it was, it's actually a theme th that I noticed throughout all the interviews. And the, the term that Tom used was episodic future thinking. And he, he brought this up as another uh, uh, way to illustrate how to proceed informed by the first principle that, that we are essentially a biological system with a bunch of hormones, including dopamine, coursing through our, I guess, is it limbic system? Um, we really need to have a biologist on to tell us more about this. Um, but he, and, and you used the word tricking yourself before Ben. So episodic future thinking is, is just psychologists speak for imagination. So, and I, it's hard for me to comprehend what it would be like to be a billionaire, but the things that spring to mind are, you know, an apartment on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, an apartment on Oxford Street in London, an apartment, you know, literally on Wall Street in New York. Um, what else? You have you have a garage containing, <laughs> you know, what what a, a Mercedes S six hundred AMG in each of those apartments um, with a custom paint. You know what I mean? You know where I'm going with this. Uh, but um, what else? You would. You would have your own private jet, I reckon. I reckon you'd have your own private jet as a billionaire. You'd have your own driver, your own, you know, pilot, for God's sake. So, you know, just as, just as an image to feed into your imagination. So Tom said, what you need to do is build up an image that is realistic. Um, so, you, you know, I'm not talking about owning whole cities here or having my own country. You wouldn't have that as a billionaire, but I think it is realistic to think that you would have, you would be able to purchase apartments and have incredibly nice cars in some of the world's best cities, which would put you walking distance to some of the best cultural experiences. So, you know, you'd be able to walk to Broadway. I actually don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I never went to Broadway actually when I went to New York. Um, so I don't know where, sorry. You should have, but you missed out. Uh, if you ever get over there again, uh, it's a you know, it's definitely worth going to see a few shows. And okay, so so where would you have an apartment in, in New York if you were a billionaire and you wanted to walk to Broadway? Um, I don't know. I, to tell the truth, I, I've been to New York a few times, but I, I don't know it well enough to answer that question. Um, yeah. really I think. Um, or should you know if we're going to do this? Come on, we need to have a proper, realistic episode. I think you would want an apartment that ultimately overlooks Grand uh, Central Park. Okay, um, yeah. And then, then you just get in your limousine and get him to drive you down to uh, Broadway. Yeah. Or you catch And him. that would be realistic as a billionaire. Yeah. Um, okay. So what I'm talking about is, so what, what, what Tom said, so this is how a psychologist responds to the problem of uh, you, leveraging our, our uh, the first principle of our hormone-based reward system to cause us to engage repetitively in behavior that will be 
conducive to incredibly uh, uh, incredible wealth. It's interesting. So he said, what we should do is imagine how amazing it would be, but it has to be a realistic imagination because you actually want to you know, use this for motivational purposes. And what that imagination can do, if it's vivid enough, is that it will core, especially if you imagine the feelings, the smells, the sounds, what you would see, what you would touch. So what you do is you feed into your, uh, your brain and into the different sensory systems the brain commands, uh, inputs which will, as vividly as possible, uh, place you there in, in the achievement. And that then will almost will actually cause some uh, hormone releases, and that is a source of motivation. That's that's my my answer to to how we can. Uh, yeah. Well, and I agree. I I, I think it is um, probably something that I haven't explored properly myself, but I do think it's something that I do want to explore, and I think we need to do it, or I need to do it regularly you need to do it maybe you have to set aside five minutes every day you know as a morning routine almost like a meditation um, where you just actually stop sit down and think about it you actually at the start of the day you, you visualize it and go through it um, <clears throat> and get it as a bit of a routine or maybe once a week I don't know how you do that like what's the best way but I do think you need to start and if you just dedicate five minutes or three minutes even, just sitting down and in a quiet spot, obviously, with no distractions and do it. And actually, let's do it properly and, and give it a go rather than just being able to talk about it. The other interesting thing I noticed with your description of it was it was very much physical asset um, based. It was about the cars <laughs> and the apartments. Um, I think also there's a there's an... You did touch on, you know, the smells and the sensations a little bit, but there's all talk about Broadway. I talked about one experience. <laughs> well, it's also about experiences, but I think imagine if you're a billionaire, the different interactions you would have with different people and the way people would treat you differently. And I don't want to sound to um, egotistical or anything, but I think people would be a lot more respectful and a lot more, they would treat you quite differently. Let's be honest, people are treated differently on many factors, you know, your gender, your race, your, but fit, material wealth is also another thing that impacts how people um, treat you. So I think that is something that you could visualize as well in terms of how people interact with you and as a billionaire you would expect that you have um i i, I would expect that it's not you're gonna have people working with you in a way like you you, you probably are going to continue on with your job but you're eventually going to get to such a level of wealth that you're thinking I'm going to give up the GIS mapping job um, for the Qatar government and actually run my own business or something, take that opportunity, especially when you're the passive income or the, the, the dividends coming through it are larger than the actual 
um, 35,000 that you need to contribute. It gives you that opportunity. Yeah. And then you start venturing out into other businesses yourself. As a boss, number one, people will treat you differently, but as a billionaire boss, um, can I treat you even more differently? So it's valuable to you then, Ben, uh, how people treat you. Have I not been treating you right, Ben? I'm sorry. You keep talking in the podcast and not giving me a chance to talk. <laughs> oh, fuck. I'm sorry, man. This will change when I'm a billionaire and I own the podcast <laughs> and you're my servant. Um, well, I do do all the editing. <laughs> I'll give you a pay rise of an extra $2 an hour. For the <laughs> Come on, man. Once I hit a billion dollars. Um. No, anyway, so I'm not saying that it's necessarily important. I think it is a factor that you can help visualise it. Um, I do think you need to think about the important things, but you also do need to think about um, uh, the other beneficial things of it as well. Yeah, well, you know, and it's, your point is reinforced by literally every single interviewee except for one of them, I think. Um, you know, the pilot said, uh you know visualization well he basically said that ross the, the other co-author um of the book he wrote um said that visualization is important in ross's interview he then went on to talk about how you know visualization is almost like you know one of the, the foundations of how he manages um the behavior of the people he coaches um and he even came up with a formula mental image mi plus um Awareness equals G, uh, goal, MI plus A equals G. So, you know, it was, and he, he'd written a little ebook about visualization. We, I think we both downloaded it. Um, and then I don't think Tom Perfromon talked about visualization. Um, but uh, yeah, Lee Colwell at the end, he, so he talked about system one, which is the automatic um uh, autonomic nervous system type uh, response or, or thinking and there's system two which is the deliberative thinking style where you do all your calculations um, and, and you know that system is at risk of being overwhelmed by the emotional override so-called of system one um, and then he talked about system three which is basically imagination so you know and uh so yeah, it, it was the only thing that basically was constant throughout all of the experts that we consulted to discover the first principles of how to actually manage human behavior well enough to achieve a billion dollars. I think one of the really good things that Tom mentioned as well, which I've read in other investing books or um, strategy books, was you really wanna reinforce the process or the action rather than the outcome. You may not yeah. always get the outcome that you want, but if you're doing the process that you, or the framework that you set up, then at least you get to analyze why you didn't get the outcome and you get to put, um, set things up in such a way that you, you have the most likelihood of getting the outcome that you want. Um, so he said- And set, that was backed up also by Phil, you know, and. I think it's pretty significant. Like Phil isn't just anybody, you know, Phil is a, a, a 
flight instructor for Australia's you know, biggest airline. So a clinical psychologist and a flight instructor for commercial pilots is, you know, both of them are, are, are saying you need to reinforce the engaging in good behaviors, not just the, the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I got from that. And the other thing which we both know is to make the goals smart, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. <clears throat> I think that's the, the words for the acronym. Um, okay, do you want to go on to episode three, which was the pilot? I think actually an interesting thing with this, and I know it's not necessarily a bit trite or cliche, but he did say... For himself he doesn't see his job as a job it's something that he loves to do and you hear it all the time people saying do the work you love and you'll never work a day in your life um <clears throat> there's sort of a nice start to the podcast with that one and then yeah. he turned and started to talk about checklists but just before i get to that i do also think that you can develop a love for your job, even if it's not necessarily a love that you have um, initially. You can spend enough time and essentially master your craft. And by mastering it, you can develop a de degree of love for the job itself and a, a de degree of competence that allows you to find satisfaction in doing the work. Because <clears throat> um, I think a lot of people put the horse before or the cart before the horse when it comes to finding a job they always think oh, i've got to do something that i love but if, what does what do people really love they love sitting on their bums watching movies they love singing in, in karaoke booths and they love playing sports but realistically there's only a very small percentage of the population can that can earn a, a decent income from doing that um so what you need to do is find a job that's going to pay a reasonable, reasonably good income and then master it. And by mastering it, you do become uh, to like the job within reason. Yeah, I, there's satisfaction through mastery and the recognition that comes from being a master. Mm. And you can be a master at anything. It's, it's quite different to have the confidence and the zen that you'll feel through being a true master of something. And you can be a master of collecting the garbage or you can be a master as the CEO of Microsoft. Both of them, if the experience involves mastery, both of those are respectable and laudable. Yeah, I know which one I would wanna be, but... Um... <laughs> you have to take your point. <laughs> Sorry. Can you edit that out? That comment's not appropriate. <laughs> um, so then, I'm noticing a theme here, Ben. You want you want respect. I do. I want to be Microsoft CEO. No, I don't. Satya Nadella is a dude, I have to say. His his attitude in some of the interview, I mean, can you imagine if we could interview someone like that? But there's something simple and true about such a Nadella's nature that I've seen. And he is a humble guy. 
here's just someone, you know, who, who, who doesn't think the sun shines out his ass. He's just there and he's doing his best. And I appreciate that about it. Send him a tweet and see if he will go, come on our podcast. Um, it's worth trying. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's worth trying. We, we, let's, let's contact Shaq as well and Michael Jordan, you know. You never know. Um, Mike Tyson. So the next thing that Phil started to talk about was checklists and the importance of checklists. And the key thing that I got from it, that is pilots do checklists before they fly. They do them during the flight and they also have checklists for emergency situations. Why couldn't we have that for investing in, uh, for companies? You, we've got a, already got a checklist in place essentially for before we purchase. So we're doing that framework from Stanford University where we both studied and um, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we, I don't know why I'm laughing. We did no, we genuinely did study that, and virtually. So we've got the one in place before. I, I think that probably covers during as well, but we don't have one for emergency situations. Like, what would you do if a company that you invested in dropped fifty percent? we don't have necessarily a guideline for what to do in that situation. It's quite hard to set up a checklist for that because there's so many scenarios that could cause it to drop 50%. Everything. Okay. Actually, I, I did begin to make one in, cause as I was quite conscientious, I'm quite proud of myself um, about how, how the editing, the amazing, you have to pay me extra at least Ben for the editing I did with, with Phil. So what I did was I, I, sum, I gave a summary, I mapped on onto investing what Phil said for each in response to each of our questions. And about the, the disasters and, and the checklists, uh, I, I gave a point, uh, I made, made a point about Amazon. It was actually from Jason Zweig, the famous uh, uh, Wall Street Journal columnist. So he talked about how Amazon dropped more than 90% um, from 2000 to 2001 during the, the tech crash. And so that was the, the price of the business dropped that much, but through 1999 to 2000 to 2001, sales increased at a compound rate of 25% per year. So and one great thing that, uh, that Phil, Phil said was when, when you're a pilot, and you think a disaster has happened, you shouldn't react immediately. What you need to do is check other instruments on your instrument panel. Maybe one of the instruments has just broken. So once you've confirmed things across multiple instruments, the next thing you have to do is confirm things across multiple uh, crew members. So you have to go and check, you know, that's why there's a co-pilot um, in, a, in a larger aircraft. So you go around the cabin and, and ask them, hey, um, are you seeing what I'm seeing? with these multiple instruments indicating there's a disaster. Um, and he said, funnily enough that, you know, and this is kind of, there was all sorts of things that you were imagining when, when he was talking, he was saying nonchalantly, oh yeah, actually usually there's enough time, you know, when, you, when you're flying, you know, actually to react and sit there and think, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking about this plane just flying towards the ground um, with the pilots, sort of, you know, scratching their chins thinking. 
Um, so in terms of investing, what are the multiple instruments that you have? The first instrument, yes, is the price of the business, which um, most people think it's the share price, but actually that's deceptive. Um, you should think about the price of the business, but that's what the share price is a proxy for. Um, but there's other instruments as well that you have on your dashboard, you know, as a, as a pilot of a, a investor. Um, and the principal one, another one is the, the sales. So if the sale, if the price of the business has crashed, but the sales have not crashed, then you're looking at an incredible buying opportunity, which is what 2000 was when Amazon, the dominant online retailer dropped more than 90% and sales were going up 25% per annum. You know, that's, that's pretty much the definition of the best buying opportunity um, that's ever existed. Maybe, maybe also um, from a human behavioral control, way to control human behavior, maybe you set up a checklist that says, if something happens, you essentially a, a checklist to control your, um, your emotions and your urges. Maybe you say this checklist has to go through certain things with the company itself, but then also the checklist dictates your own behavior. So you say, let's say you had a rule, you don't sell shares without doing one month's worth of research. Um, in an emergency situation, you, you put a the delay or pause button on your own reactions. Um, saying, yeah, it could be one month, it could be one week, or it could be three three months. You have to determine that. But I like the idea of putting a pause button on your own um, ability to make a choice, um, because you're trying to override the emotions. Um, you know we've all bought shares and seen them drop a huge amount and then freaked out and, and decided to sell or um, sold early when we've made a small gain. Uh, uh, I think one thing that I'm going to put in place in my um, framework is that I'm only going to be give myself the permission to purchase shares or sell shares four times a year. So it's going to be quarterly. It's going to be start of January, the start of um, April, the start of July, and then the start of, um, what's the next one, October or whatever it is. Um, so you can do the research and you can find all these bargains. And if it's not a good bargain in two and a half months from when you've identified it, then it probably it's probably not the right um, company in the first place. It's got to be low for a while. Um, we shouldn't be just trying to find these companies that are very specky. Yeah. I think that's, at least from a human control, um, emotional control perspective, that is part of a framework that could work well, I think. Okay, great. So let, let, we should start taking notes about a framework. Yeah. Uh, Buy and sell four times a year? The option, you don't have to, obviously, you don't have to sell or buy, but you only have that option, opportunity, I should say, to buy or sell. Um, well, that reminds me of another interviewee that I want us to get, which is Nick Griffin, who's the Chief Investment Officer for Munro Partners. And he said that they use a 20% um, stop loss, not as an automatic sell, 
but as a trigger to for the whole team, not just the analyst who came up with the idea, but for the whole team to review whether or not the investment thesis is still valid. And he said that generally, and for the uh, for the investment to stay in the portfolio, the, in, there has to be a consensus amongst the whole team that it should stay in. And he said that generally, the first review will result in, uh, you know, uh, consensus agreement that it will stay in consensus that, that it should stay in. But if if the uh, uh, at the month, I think there's a he, they do a monthly review. So if the next month it's still down twenty percent. Um, you know, then they have that discussion again and they might become more serious about removing it. Um, but that's, you know, that's another uh, uh, possible addition to the framework. Yeah, exactly. So you could, you could, if you're really worried about a share or you see a good opportunity, um, you may throw it over to me and, and get myself to review it. And then exactly at least you know, obviously I don't dictate whether you buy or, or sell, but at least you've gotten another perspective on, on the company. Um, yes, yeah, so, so to take this seriously, we would, we would come up with, we would make literally make a cockpit, you know, a pilot cockpit as investors. We, we could literally have like a, we could have a, a diagram of the dials. So one of the dials would be the price of the business. Another dial would be the rate of increase in sales per year. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, so you have a bunch of dials, and the disaster that you're thinking is occurring based on output from one of the dials has to be shown across the other dials as well before you get concerned. Then you have to take that uh, information to your investment partner. So I would go to you, and if if you also think, yeah, that's a disaster, then we would start to uh, become alarmed and maybe consider selling. Another thing that Phil mentioned is that, or what, what this uh, large airline that he works for does, they look at the, the possibility of bias occurring at a particular geographic location. So they'll go to other offices around the world or around the country with that information to see if people in a different office um, also uh, have the same um, interpretation of the inputs. So that's something else for us to consider if we if we could have a, a network of investment partners around the planet uh, in different cultures, um, preferably uh, different places and cultures, then we give ourselves the best chance of all maybe of avoiding biases in our location or in our culture. Another one that I thought was interesting and it comes back to the Dando investor as well, but it's something that Phil mentioned that pilots often go, they have to do simulations and they practice um, different scenarios. So it might be that they have to practice landing in a stormy weather where part of the um, airplane is not functioning appropriately. Similar to that, you can reverse engineer other investors' um, recent purchases. So in the Dando Investor, he talks about an opportunity that he found and made a lot of money from where he read um, that Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, purchased um, some bonds in a company, which was an IT company actually, and it's not normally the play playground of Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett. But when he heard that Buffett had made this purchase, and it was just a rumor, he started to look in the, into it and reverse engineered, why would have Buffett made this purchase? <clears throat> 
And we could start doing things like that as well. It doesn't have to be Buffett. It could be um, any other reasonably famous investor. But if we find an opportunity where they've made a purchase, either through the 13Fs or, any, or even a newspaper headline, then we can analyze that ourselves and um, see if we can work out why we understand why they made the purchase. Yeah. That's, that's another way of leveraging the work and the, 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 um, the yeah, the, the, the understanding of other analysts. Because what we're basically doing at the moment is somewhat randomly selecting companies and analyzing them through the framework rather than, um, I guess we're not just doing that. We're also looking at low PE ratio companies and high dividend yield companies and growth stock, but um, it's just another bow to the string. Yeah, and uh, another thing from my my notes um, from our interview with, with Bill was the observation that investor sentiment can affect only one of the dials in your cockpit dashboard. And that is the dial showing the price of the business. My emotions about the fact that there have been 20 earthquakes simultaneously and 40 volcanoes having erupted, you know, my emotions about that disaster might cause me to sell as into momentarily value a business that I own as being zero. So that will then drop the price of the business in the market for stocks, as Nick Griffin likes to say, rather than the stock market. I like that term, but the market for stocks. But my, my sentiment as an investor cannot affect um, the position of the needle, for example, on the, the sales. So I thought that was instructive to um to consider like to have as your sources of information um dials on your dashboard that have information that doesn't come from the emotions of investors so maybe you should in fact ignore the price of the business and its proxy the stock price entirely just base your decision on the growth in sales the growth in free cash flow the growth in operating income ignore everything else if you see fantastic growth in free cash flow then you get interested totally ignore fantastic growth in proxies actually of growth in free cash flow like the price of the business because what are analysts trying to do you know they an analyst basically express their understanding and expectations about the growth in free cash flow and operating income in an increase in the stock price so that's us using that, that's not first principles, is it? To look at um, the stock price, given it's a proxy for something else. We should mm. be first principles investors and look at what drives the price of the business in investors' eyes, which is its ability to generate a return and increase year on year that return. A long spiel, sorry. I think one of the other things that um, I got from Phil as well was, his 
discussion that you always need to continue to educate yourself, make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people, but also making sure that you debrief. If you make a mistake, or even if you make a success, you need to debrief and journalize, journal, debrief. I don't think it's enough just to sort of think it through in your head. I think you actually do need to write it down. Um, there's a lot more benefit and a lot more contemplation and thought put into putting something down on paper than there is just thinking it through or even chatting to someone on, on Zoom or a podcast or even face-to-face. I think that's a critical component of a checklist or, 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 a, or a process. Yep. And uh, that was also a, a suggestion from Ross. Um, and yeah, Phil said that that was the single most important way um, that his flying had improved. Yep. Um, the other things that they talked, we talked about with Phil was um, confirmation bias, different types of biases, groupthink. Um, and now that we've already got those in the framework, I, I don't know if we pay enough attention to them. I remember listening in the podcast, you did say to Phil, yeah, we've got those and we can spend up to 15 minutes filling them out. <laughs> I thought, wow, 15 minutes is not really a lot of time to, to do it um, realistically. Uh, I know a lot of them you, you do need to skip over just because they're not relevant to the situation. But um, so we've got those in place. The last thing that I thought was interesting with that interview was the hierarchy of languages, the different types of communication that they have between the pilot um, and other people on the craft. Yeah, I'm just taking some notes here. Um, another thing that was common was they, so Phil and Tom mentioned mnemonics. Tom had the SMART or SMARTER goals mnemonic and Phil mentioned a number of mnemonics uh, based on the, the first letter of each of the items in the checklist that they have. One of them was bump flow. I forget exactly what, um, what each of those letters stood for. Um, but yeah. if we're going to have checklists, we maybe might want to um, turn those checklists into mnemonics. Yeah, they can be useful mnemonics. I, I also am cautious of using too many um, acronyms because acronyms can become vague and almost jargony as well. I think they have their place, but you know we've all worked in organizations or we've all read reports or articles by people that use a lot of jargon and it becomes ambiguous what they're actually saying. Um, and a we'll turn into a government bureaucracy and we will name our new government departments in order for them to sound like a good uh, acronym. <laughs> turn into a consulting yeah. firm um, and yeah. use all this jargon just rather than being clear and accurate, which is what we want to achieve. <clears throat> All right, um, I liked episode four. 
if you don't mind us going to that, where we talked about Blue Ocean Strategy, um, which was a book that I had read, and just in that briefly around a different way to analyze a company from a customer's perspective, looking at a company across the value uh, line or the value proposition that the company provides um, and thinking about a company that way. <clears throat> uh, you talked a lot about how distracting stock prices are in that episode uh, and that you really want to avoid them. Um, did you get anything else from that episode? Or you oh, I just liked it for the prompt for us to start thinking about being operators of businesses rather than just investors in businesses. And this to me is, you know, it's the big scary thing that I've thought about doing for a long time, but haven't had the courage to do, which is to, to set up a business. And I liked this first sort of, you know, introduction for me to the idea of coming up with, you know, if you, an idea for a business. Um, and we sort of went on, uh, to another way of thinking about how to start a business in, in either the next or maybe it was the next episode or, or the one after that, um, where I summarized the star principle, which to be honest is, is basically the same. Um, Richard Koch said, uh, you want to be in an industry that's expanding at at least 10% a year. Uh, and, the business that you invest in or the business that you start needs to be the leader in that industry. And he used the word niche. So you don't, if you, you don't want to maybe, you know, start a, another general social network business that is the scale and size of Twitter or Facebook. You want to start a niche social network, you know, for, I don't know, um, Dalmatian owners, um, and you want to be uh, the best Dalmatian owners social network. <laughs> well, well uh, nice, uh, nice um, little business there. Very niche, as you say, Dalmatian owners. Um, so long as it's really popular and you've found through metrics of the pet uh, industry, you know, specifically that um, the most popular new pet to have is a Dalmatian. Maybe you could do that. You could literally just harvest these trends out of, you know, I don't know if there, there must be a bunch of market research businesses out there. I think Ibis World is one of them. Uh, you know, I don't know, just your standard, you know, industry or business, you know, you can start with Reuters or, or Bloomberg and, and go from there. And whatever trends there are that you see that seem to be persisting, um, go and see if you can set up a social network to for those participants in those trends to to showcase their achievements or um, find other people that, that have a similar love of Dalmatians. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of examples. As, that reminds me of an example where a woman set up a social network for pregnant mothers. Um, and it was huge, you know, because pregnant mothers, you know, have... Um, the obvious concern and, and want a resource and also a network of people that they can rely on. Um, uh, so 
that's that's an example of where someone's found that niche um, within a, a, a bigger area, bigger um, business to, to focus on. It's in, the, the interesting thing with that is it's a different approach, a totally different approach from the one that Kenneth Marshall and value investors normally go with. They, they normally go with um, investing in tried and true businesses that just happen to be cheap at the current moment in time. Um, I'm not saying there's no relationship between them at all. You have to choose one or the other, but I do think it's, I think if you're going to follow the style, and I haven't read the book, so I can't talk too much about it, but if you are going to follow it, I'd want to be doing that degree of due diligence to get enough confidence to invest in one of those. I don't know if you know whether he talks to that at all in the, in the book or are you just, is it quite a simple methodology where you're finding something that um, follows um, three or four key criteria and then you invest in it or is it more in depth than that in, in the amount of research? Uh, well, I haven't finished it. I, I'm up to the chapter where he's talking about how to come up with ideas. Um, and I think there was 38 different uh, sources of ideas to generate a star business. Um, and I, I want to make a personal comment here. The, the idea of starting a business and just the idea of being successful is challenging to me. I, it's not my identity. My identity is to be a worker. My identity is that I, and I've had this since I was a, a little kid, I've always been an incredibly conscientious rule following person. And it's not my identity to lead others or to be a boss. And I, that's, that, and funny as it sounds to, to talk about this, that makes it hard for me to, to persist in this challenge because for me to be a billionaire, as ridiculous as it sounds for me, me to even casually bring this up, well, it, it is ridiculous to me. It's not in my worldview of who I am as a person. And I, I don't know, I just wanted to mention that because it stops me actually persisting in this. Do you think that, um, have you worked as a manager of people yet in your career or have you always just done the work yourself? Yeah, I have actually, and I really enjoyed it. So on, on that project in Kuwait, I, I was actually involved in one of the largest uh, soil remediation or environmental cleanup projects in the world uh, in Kuwait, believe it or not, in the biggest oil field there. And I was responsible for between two and three, the, the output of between two and three staff uh, in working for three contract, three international contractors. Uh, so basically between six and nine uh, people 
plus um, another staff member in my office. So sort of between seven and, and 10 people. Um, sorry, I have to go and check the door. Invite them in. Invite them in so we can do a um, podcast with them. Help me, help me, he's got me prisoner. Help me, please, don't go away, help, help. <laughs> what? What did you want? He's trying to trick the doorman into thinking that you had someone that was prisoner in your room <laughs> and he was gonna call the Q80 police and they were gonna stop your window anymore. It's actually interesting being here, like, uh, they're all dressed up in these disposable hospital gowns, gloves, you know, the full works to make sure they don't get infected. But like, it's the, it's the second week of quarantine. Um, I've been through, I've had the virus, my eyes were stinging, my nose was blocked. I, I was pretty sick, you know, um, it, it was like the flu, um, basically. Well, it'll be interesting uh, to see how you are in three three months or six months from now, whether your health is as good as it was before or whether you're... Because my concern would be not so much getting the flu for a couple of weeks. It would be the long-term impact on fatigue. And that's what I've heard a number of people, like quite strong and young sportsmen still suffering um, some sort of impact from from it several months afterwards. Yep, that that's right, and I've already had that. So I went to the gym, I got on the treadmill, and I think I did, I did about about four kilometers, and I slept for three hours afterwards. And I did that again yesterday. I think I slept from like two until six. Wow. And you know, I'm relatively fit. I, I was when I was in, in Serbia uh, a month ago, I was doing laps of, you know, on the Danube between two bridges in Novi Sad. There's this lovely little jogging route you can do. And I was doing that in like one or zero degrees um, without any issue. Um, and that was a three three kilometer run. Um, I wasn't exhausted afterwards. Mm. Okay. Um, I've got to sort of wrap up in a few sort of 10 minutes or so. Um, sure. What was I talking about? The, I was really making stuff. a point. Oh, yeah, I was talking about identity. Yeah. And you, so you've been a manager, so you've managed people, and you felt that you did that yeah. competently? I was quite proud of my achievements with that week. Like they started off, they were terrible. Their, their Excel skills were non-existent. Um, but by the end of it, they were a well-oiled machine. You know, we, we had them producing data, which was, you know, uh, perfect on the first go and went straight into, you know, our database and we could run automatically all of the reports without issue. Um, and I thought that some confidence that you could 
um, instruct people. I guess, yeah, you're right. And did you feel, did you, you said that you enjoyed the experience as well. I did, yeah. I, well, <laughs> I have a bit of a combative nature and I'm very exacting and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Um, so I, I, to be honest, I had a bit of, I, I was on the edge of a mental breakdown at the start and that was partly because of the way that project was set up and the idiocy of the people who wrote the contract. Essentially the contract that was written gave the instructors the wrong instructions. So they produced data that could never have been used to do what we needed to do. Um, so we had to go through this, you know, uh, I had to go through this process of fixing up uh, the work on of my team um, so that we could actually have the, the contractors do the right thing. And that was, uh, yeah, that was a harrowing experience. Um, so it was on us actually, and it was on the people that were working before I got there. Um, All right, so what did you get? So look, I think it's just a matter of, Get, it's probably just a matter of getting to the right stage in life before you start a business. And it might not be now or in the next six months. Um, I'm thinking of starting one in Qatar. I already came up with a name, Waters Geospatial. And the Qatar Finance Commission um, or centre uh, will, for a fee of 5,000 bucks a year, allow you to have 100% ownership of your business rather than 49% that you'd have to suffer uh, without it. So you'd have to have a cuttery with 51% ownership. So yeah, I'm, I'm already thinking of, of starting a geospatial firm here. Um, and I'd like to have a, a geospatial arm purely uh, like consulting. I'd like to have an equipment hire arm uh, for you know theodolites and total stations and other surveying equipment. And I'd like to have a finance arm. And I'm, there's a new discipline called geospatial finance, which basically, you know, um, has geospatial analysts working for insurance firms, banks, investing, investment firms, hedge funds. Um, to, yeah, you know, the, it's, those analysts can offer interesting insights um, to those institutions. Can, um... Yeah, okay. If there's Excel opportunities where you need a hand, let us know because I'll I can work for for it. Like seriously, my Excel skills are pretty good. Oh, I I bet they are, mate. You're a you're a chartered accountant. Um, where I, this would be lacking is the technical side of geospatial, but I mean, yeah. Oh well, yeah. Come here. We can have. We can rent an office in West Bay. Um, we can enjoy the views. I'll. I'll show you. Yeah. Do I need to be in the country? Can I do some small gigs from here in Australia? Is what I meant initially. Um. No. My experience is that remote work is terrible. Remote work is terrible. Yeah, you need to have face-to-face. -face. I've been on two projects in the Middle East where we had remote workers and it was just a recipe for failure. Okay, alrighty. I'll come over. Just get, guarantee me a $200,000 job uh, salary or I'll even come over for 180. <laughs> All 
All right, I'll, I'll give it to you as um, stock-based compensation. How about that? <laughs> Sent like a true startup. Let's do, I've, I've got five minutes left. Um, all right, well, let's wrap it up there then. So what are the first principles that we've discovered from uh, Tom Watts, Phil Wilkes, uh, Ross Bentley and our uh, um, investigations of the Blue Ocean Strategy and, and the STAR Principle. What are the, the first principles we, we've discovered that we can plug into an optimal human uh, behaviour investing framework? I think some what I was going to finish off with Ross was some of the points that he made, which I thought were relevant, that were unique or added to... Um, the potential checklist or the the methodology that we apply. <clears throat> they included the need to apply a unique methodology can be um, quite critical. You can't just and unique is a is a key word here. It doesn't mean to be mean a different methodology, it can mean doing the work thoroughly. A lot of people think that they're value investors or analysts, but they're doing superficial work. I think it's critical um, that the work that we do and identifying companies needs to be robust. And I think a lot of people that are like us retail investors are probably not doing really in-depth um, due diligence or applying a checklist or getting friends or partners to um, review the work and essentially what we're doing, literally what we're doing, 99% of investors do not do it. Like even if they apply the good stocks cheap framework that's only part of what we're talking about. They're not um, having these smart goals. They're not having um, visualization. They're not doing um, rewards, short-term. They're not coming up with shared visualizations and triggers and programming between members of a team, which Ross mentioned as being a critical, a critical thing that distinguished different racing teams. He said, you can, you can have the best, the best cars, you know, the best uh, coaches, but the thing that um, sets teams apart is when they have a shared vision and shared programming and shared triggers. Uh, and I, I really, when he said that, I smiled and I was like, well, look at what you and I are doing. We are being serious enough about this to set up a podcast and interview someone like Ross who was, by the way, hello, an IndyCar driver, for goodness sake. And he was someone who, you know, he, he had amazing stories like escaping a burning IndyCar and then trying to still qualify the next week with a burnt face. The other thing that I, yeah. proud when he said that and realising what we were doing, you know, that we were doing exactly what he, someone like him said should, should be doing. And the other that. thing that I think was really... Um, related to that was his attitude. He he talked about when he was an IndyCar racer and 
I don't remember the exact story that he said, but he often had the attitude of being very competitive, but also being an underdog mentality where he used the exact phrase of saying, watch this. If you don't think I can do it, then watch this. Um, so for us, it needs to be, okay, if you don't think you can become, get $2 million in net assets, okay, then watch this. I'm going to do it. Um, so you need to have that sort of attitude and bring that to the table. Um, I loved that. Yeah. Watch this capital. That can be the name of our partnership. Yeah, exactly. Um, he said... And I love the story about his wife buying a house in Hawaii and doing a dance, the traditional dance, the welcome dance for going into someone's house. I thought that was beautiful and and spiritual and and holy and good and sacred and uh that 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 kicked off an interesting discussion in the podcast about how you can't have a hope of winning if you're copying others well the interesting thing is what that dance the opportunity that it brought up for them was that the real estate agent had heard that she had did that dance and there was the, the house yeah so he offered her the house and said, yeah, you're the right one. So I think exploring other, other, you know, I don't expect us to do a dance, but trying but to- maybe we, maybe we should, that would be outrageous, you know, that a, a chartered accountant and a geospatial analyst were applying a, you know, value investing framework from some, you know, some Stanford professor should have as part of their investing approach, the ultimate emotional pull of an actual dance. I love it. Well, it could be a visualization session, like a group visualization uh, meditation session with people that we run each week on a Thursday night for half an hour, we do a vis meditation vis visualization, something like that. Just this is the scene from the Wolf of Wall Street where that guy is beating his chest in the restaurant in front of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> that was Matthew O'Connor, wasn't it? Yeah, whatever his name is. I think the critical thing with that is McConaughey people recognize you because of the, that action. So she was recognized because she did the dance and it connected with people so it's it's not so much the the dance itself or the meditation necessarily itself it's getting um essentially recognition from people and awareness and it's a part it was a part of the analytical process funnily enough it was a source of information just as much as anything else it was it it that dance said that this woman recognized what was meaningful to that person and it said that she would, she operated in accordance with his values and she would be in that house and take care of the house that he developed a connection with by living in it uh, in the same way that he would. So yeah. there was data and there was information in that dance that she conveyed incredibly efficiently. You couldn't have conveyed it more efficiently than actually doing the dance. She could have talked, she could have given a university lecture about Hawaiian culture but that wouldn't have done it as quickly and as efficiently as doing the dance for five minutes or 
one minute. The other things that Ross mentioned, which is a reiteration of what both Tom and Phil mentioned was to focus on performance and process, not so much on the outcome. Um, another thing that he had a lot of value from was the fixed versus growth mindset. Yes, uh, I loved that. I think that's something that maybe you could read about the growth mindset, even if you go out and buy the book, like you could probably download it um, for free, but it's probably only $15 now because that book's been around for a while. Um, it's worth reading because you want to have a growth mindset and, and think of- Well, we can also do, because we both have psych degrees, right? I've got an honors degree, you've got a grad dip, which is the same. Um, what we should be doing is reading and summarizing her academic research. And what we should also be aiming to do in season two is getting researchers like her to come on the show and talk technically about, you know, the procedures they went through and the an, an analyses that they did um, and, you know, talk, get them to actually talk about the first principles. Yep. So what else I got from Phil was not to hold on to mistakes. Make hey, Ross. Oh, sorry, Ross. Um, don't hold on to mistakes. Get feedback. Mental imaging, which we've talked about. His I love the feedback thing. I love the MI plus A equals G. And I, I you know, I was thinking if we're going to have a partnership and we're going to have an analyst team, you know, we're going to have a shared vision. We're going to have a bunch of, of triggers and mental programs that the whole team is going to use. But also what we're going to have is constant awareness and metrics that, you know, tell us the difference between the portfolio's current position and the goal. And that uh, awareness will be available 24-7 when you're in the analyst chair. So then that will help our our brains, as he said, I loved it. The brain, you, you give the brain the image and the awareness about the difference, the current difference from the image and the brain will find a way to bring the two together. And I, I love that how he, he sort of characterized the function of the brain there. And the last thing that I had in my notes from Ross was the importance of sleep. He said, you know, it's important to be looking after yourself. This is a long-term thing that we're, planning um, so we're not going to achieve the goal in one year or five years from now it's going to be over multiple decades and it's critical that we look after ourselves both in terms of sleep and health um, exercise you don't have to be a triathlete or anything like that but um, some sensible use of um, physical and mental um, abilities is appropriate um, so I liked how he rounded it off because a lot of what I've been talking about is just mental or um, financial or, or those sort of things I, I do think it's important to look after our health health um, especially over the decades as, as it goes forward yeah I agree and, and we could all you know, there was a sleep research lab at Flinders University. Leon Lack, uh, he was actually a researcher from America. He was, you know, based, I think he was my first, he did my first psych uh, lecture 
way back in 2003. Um, yeah, he, he had an invention where there was like two blue LEDs on a glasses frame that you would wear in a, on a long distance flight to reduce the jet lag you'd have. Um, and that's getting back to the first principle, you know, that we are a biological system. Um, and through having blue light, which is what you get in daylight, um, it would basically change the way that the brain responded to being in a long distance flight such that you wouldn't be exhausted. Uh, it was a way to maintain your circadian rhythm, I think, um, or to change the way that it's usually adjusted by a long distance flight so you wouldn't have jet lag. So that's another example of how, you know, you can use first principles with an understanding. If you, if you understand that we're a biological system, we're a primate, you know, with a bunch of instincts um, that were shaped, as Tom said, you know, in the savannah, as um, as as cringeworthily uh, as cringeworthy as it is to sort of talk in such terms. It's a fact, you know. As Tom said, we've spent four hundred thousand years evolving. We've only had accounting systems to four thousand years. Basically, for four hundred thousand years, we we haven't had any exposure to accounting systems to these concepts at all so we we come to the challenge with a bunch of automatic responses that don't really map automatically onto what we're trying to do i think one other thing that i'm going to put into the process or the the framework is scheduling time each day to actually do the work because one of the hard things that i I find is that if I, to get my dopamine hits each afternoon after work and when I'm tired, I will usually jump on YouTube or play um, online backgammon. And so it's really tough at that time of day to actually be motivated to start researching a company or reading an article that's finance or company related. I think I'm gonna to have to put in my process each morning, the first thing I do is two hours worth of research. And maybe that's all I do. And then I go to work, do my work. And then the afternoons become essentially um, downtime, relaxation time. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Me too. And I have another I have another thing that's stopping me, which is fear. Like, and it gets, I think it's also about the identity thing. Like I talked about the identity thing as one thing that stops me. You know, I it doesn't match my view of myself and it's not in my my immediate upbringing. There's another thing, like I actually come from a, a fairly wealthy family. If you look back 300 years, like on my dad's side, they ran the waters, uh, their name was in the name of a bank from Carmarthen in, in Wales. And I'd, I'd love to go, go through that. And on my mother's side, there are a bunch of Greek traders. And one of the family members, he, he paid for a, a Greek Orthodox church to be built in Paris and another one in London, you know. Um, but at least in terms of my immediate family um, in my lifetime, I come from a very average background where the best I could do really Success for me was to become a professional, and that's what I am. So you're, um, you're actually, you've already met, met the one billion 
dollar target. You just got your timing wrong. You should absolutely. When I worked out, you know, the wealth that the there's this guy. There's actually, you know, um, there's a history of of Greek traders that uh, or, or famous Greeks or something online. Um, like the the my mother's family, some of them are, are written about. Um, and I, yeah, I compounded the wealth that he achieved. I compounded that for the 300 years to now at 7%. And it was trillions of dollars what, what that money could have been for my generation. But what, so that's the one, one thing. So my, my identity is that I, I'm successful if I'm just a professional. That's, that's success for me. So there's, that's, that's, the, that's the one thing that's holding me back. The other thing is, um, it's scary to be a value investor. And this is a common thing that throughout the literature and what people say, like, who are value investors, you know, you, you, you're going against what everybody else is saying. You're buying Wells Fargo at 20 bucks during a, uh, uh, a recession. And you're having to have the imagination to say, oh, no, they're going to go back up to 60 bucks. And by the way, that's that's actually starting to happen. They're up to 30 bucks already after the value investing framework and, and a workshop that I did with the professor said we should consider buying it at 20 bucks. And I'm kicking myself because I missed it. I missed the run from 20 to 30. And I'm, now I'm buying it. At, you know, I think I bought it at 27 because I was like, well, damn it. You know, my fear stopped me. You know, but it's still going to keep going up because it's still cheap. The framework says that Wells Fargo is still cheap. So the the fear of putting my capital at risk um, is another thing that stops me doing you know that every night. Like you you said that we should be scheduling it. So I agree. You know, and and a schedule, an iron discipline, is is what's going to help push me through the fear. Along with you know, I, maybe I just had to see that it works. And that's, you know, actually why I've signed up for another of the workshops with the professor, because I've seen that, you know, um, the, the portfolio of stocks from um, a workshop, uh, two of the workshops ago, has on average gone up 30%. Well, one way to, um, I guess, alleviate to a degree that fear of going against the crowd would be portfolio sizing. So determining how much money you actually put into that investment. So you, part of your checklist might be to say you don't, allocate any more than five percent of your funds yes. and five percent is a bit of a random number but it, it would get you to 20 stocks if each of them just had five five percent um so then you would you, you mitigate a lot of the risk there by if you've only got five percent in something um if it goes to zero then you've only lost five percent of your total funds or you could even do smaller you could do a portfolio of um I don't know what the percentage is of 30 stocks or you probably wouldn't want to go 40 or 50, um, but um, that's one way to mitigate that fear is how much you invest. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a percentage. It could be just, you're not going to invest anything more than five grand. Who cares if you lose yeah. that? Yeah, sure. What I've been doing is I've just been putting a thousand bucks on each of the ideas. I mean, basically I am, I'm so risk averse. It's hilarious, <laughs> but actually the, the only one I put a significant amount on was Revolve. And there was kind of a dance involved with Revolve. So I bought one of the cocktail dresses for my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And we actually posed in front of the Opera House in Sydney on this fantastic holiday that we had together. 
with her dressed in wearing that dress before going to uh, an opera. Um, so that was the equivalent of doing the dance with an investment for me, you know. But you don't necessarily want to frame your risk aversion as a negative. And we did go dancing. We went to a club after the opera and we went dancing with that. With, she went dancing with that dress. So that happened. So this is a framework. This is the dance, dance capital. Dance capital is, is the name of our, our partnership. Did a real estate agent contact you and say, you guys were destined for the Sydney Opera House, they're gonna sell it to you? <laughs> well, when we're billionaires, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be purchasing opera houses. You may not necessarily wanna frame your risk aversion as a negative either. You're, neither you nor I are very experienced in investing. We're using a framework from a $30 book that we bought and from a 10-week course that we did online. I don't think your risk aversion is unfounded. I, I do think, like I haven't spent heaps of money either on it either. I've got access to hundreds of thousands of dollars through my um, mortgage loans. But fuck no, I'm not. If Wells, Wells Fargo or um, any, you know, Weight Watchers met the framework, I didn't pull down a hundred grand and throw it onto Weight Watchers. Right. But if you had, you would have 200 now. Yeah, but we're in the learning phase as well. Like we're in the, you know, a lot of people in our situation would have just been doing paper paper trades in the right. sense of just writing down, okay, I'm going to purchase it. Like the fact that you put a thousand in, I guess be a little bit gentle on yourself. Is what I'm well, saying. actually, you know, as um, I've actually made enough on paper to purchase a car through applying this framework. And it was particularly the investment in Revolve that's done most of the heavy lifting with that. So, and I worked so that it's hilarious the sorts of cars you can buy in Qatar. All right. And I worked out that I've actually made enough on paper to purchase a 2006 Mercedes S600 AMG. And this, this is basically the best, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a limousine essentially. <laughs> it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a V12, it's, yeah, it's a V12 twin turbo, uh, you know, the best Mercedes sedan you can possibly buy. It has massaging seats. It has night vision. Um, and because of the staggering depreciation that you get on these cars and because nobody wants these sorts of things in, in Qatar, you know, because they all buy the latest and greatest on their fantastic oil industry salaries, um, this sort of thing can, can be had for, for <laughs> secondhand for a, <laughs> um, for a yeah, a, a, um, a ridiculously cheap price. So I, I almost feel like, you know, as, as a reward to keep the dopamine flowing. Um, <laughs> Do you remember, remember when yeah. I, was, I was looking at cars to purchase? I remember yeah. I found some car, I think it was a BMW and I sent you the- You wanted to buy an X5 and I said, you're not there yet, don't get tempted. So yeah, I get what, I know yeah. what you're gonna say. I'm not rich, you're not rich. And if you keep buying 
secondhand V12 Mercedes, you're not going to get a billion dollars. And <laughs> you probably won't even get to $2 million. Yeah, I agree. That is the um, single way that people are kept poor is through luxury car depreciation. I, I totally get it. But I, you know, it was, it was something of a, of an achievement for me to think that I had made enough on paper through app, applying this framework um, to buy a car like that. So earn the money. If you want the car, just earn the money from your job and buy it, but just make sure you're getting those short-term targets of 35 grand a year invested. Yeah, that's the goal. And definitely our dopamine, um, juicing system should be around reinforcing the behavior of committing that capital each year. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I've kept you long enough. I know you, you want to go. Maybe we will need another, we'll, we'll have another summary episode um, when you have the time to, to build this framework as best as we can from, from these interviewees and then uh, kick off uh, season uh, two.